0: Mathematics is all about a mindset shift. Here, math becomes a lens through which we see the world more clearly. Math is a vehicle that takes us to exciting new places. It's a medium through which we can experience life with more freedom and power. Come stand here with me at the edge of math. Let's throw the gates wide open and take a little journey together. I'm Amy Buchanan, your host. Welcome to Mathematics. Welcome to the podcast. This is the second episode of Mathematics. Now, I plan to dedicate every episode to someone who has influenced my thinking, someone who has helped me to find my own freedom and power through understanding math sometimes that will be a historical figure. If you listen to last week's episode, you'll remember that I was dedicating that one to the father of set theory, Georg Cantor. So somebody from the past. Today's episode is dedicated to a contemporary, a math educator whose name is Pam Harris. A few years back, and I guess a little context for backstory here, As I record this, I am currently in my fifth year as a teacher, but I am quite a bit older than that would seem to imply because education is a career change for me. I worked for many years in accounting and I ended up getting my teaching certificate so that I could teach math in the classroom. And I have never looked back. I love being an educator. I love working in education. So a few years ago, as I began teaching and I was reading whatever I could get my hands on to help me to figure out how to teach math well, because I've always felt pretty comfortable figuring out math on my own, but I wanted to be able to teach it well. And I came across Pam Harris's graphic for the development of mathematical reasoning. That's the title of it. And I can still remember where I was sitting in my car when I first laid eyes on this. I was scrolling through my phone and I remember realizing that everything I was trying to fit together, I had already been teaching for a while, it all fell into place. Literally, it was like this framework that helped me to understand where my students were and why some of them were struggling, but also how I could help them to get from where they were to where they needed to go. And the main part of the diagram shows that we go through these stages of counting strategies to additive thinking, to multiplicative reasoning, to proportional reasoning, to functional reasoning. And having that as a framework for how those build upon one another and relate to each other was so incredibly valuable to me in my own math journey and for sure in understanding what was going on inside my students' heads and where they were and, again, how I could help them based on which reasonings they had developed and which ones they still needed to work through. So I'm going to talk in some more detail about that. In some situations, my students were sort of stuck at those previous levels. I've mostly taught middle schoolers, and the math that we're learning in middle school is primarily the development of that proportional reasoning in those sixth and seventh grades, and then moving on to some functional reasoning in the eighth grade, roughly, these overlap. But in some situations, my students were sort of stuck in those previous levels back at additive reasoning, or even in some cases at the counting strategies, which it can sort of lead to this despair like you've got some students that are so many grade levels behind or whatever. And yet this diagram actually helped me to overcome that despair and to understand how to connect these reasonings together and how to do it in a way that doesn't take years and years and years. So there is certainly the sense in which the goal is always to be moving a student further and further along into these more sophisticated levels of reasoning. But also the thing I love about this diagram is that these reasonings encompass each other And you never like leave a level behind. Everything stays with you as you move forward. I mean, last week we were literally talking about counting and took that to this amazing, complicated place. And so it's okay for a student to have only developed a certain level of reasoning. If a student is sort of stuck reasoning additively, let's say, in like the sixth grade, maybe for them a decent amount of challenge for that sixth grader is to solve some second grade addition problems. Like that's challenging for them. However, and this is so very important, this does not mean that that sixth grader should be doing second grade work. The best thing we can do for the education of a sixth grader who is thinking additively is to give them sixth grade problems, problems that are intended to work towards that ratio and proportional reasoning, and let them play with those problems using the reasoning that they have no matter how long it takes to solve those problems, they will not solve them very efficiently, but they can solve them and they can solve them with a level of understanding that they get from working through it using the reasoning that they have. So I'm gonna take a tiny rabbit trail. Okay, actually it's gonna be a long rabbit trail, but I wanted to give you a specific example of what I'm talking about with this little story. Let's say you've got a sixth grader and you want them to be able to answer the question, at 60 miles per hour, how many miles will you have traveled after three and a half hours. An efficient way to solve that is to multiply 60 by 3.5, rate times time, and that gives you distance. And I'll come back to that in a minute, but this can be solved by going quite a bit more slowly and thinking. And this is the type of reasoning that your, quote, second grade level students are very capable of. It takes a little longer, but this is the reasoning you go through. So what does that mean, 60 miles per hour? That means in one hour, you've gone 60 miles. So we know how far we can go in one hour. Actually have the student picture that. They get in their car, they drive for an hour. You know, that's as long a long TV episode. And you've gone 60 miles. Pick two cities that are 60 miles apart that you know in your vicinity. Then talk about, okay, but we keep driving. In the next hour, we've gone another 60 miles. We're driving at that constant speed, right? So two hours have gone by and that's 120 miles. And then in that third hour, we go another 60 miles. So there you've got 180 miles that you've traveled. And then there's that half hour. How far did I go in that last half hour? Well, let's add that on. That whole thing is not quote efficient, but it's quite accessible using mostly the calculating skills that a second grader would have. Along with that piece of understanding, the sense that in that rate, that proportional relationship between distance and time you've got there, those two quantities are related in this certain way, where for every hour, you're gonna go 60 miles. Okay, so the calculating skills that they used were more like just a combination of counting, like counting up those hours, and then addition, so they're adding the corresponding miles. With a very simple fraction or sort of division piece thrown in, we did have to reason about a half an hour and how that corresponded with the 60 miles, but even that piece, Students at this level of reasoning will often find half of the 60 by reasoning additively. Like they'll think, okay, I know that 30 plus 30 is 60. So that is how they deduce that half of 60 is 30 by breaking it into two equal pieces by thinking of what two things can I add together. So what math did they actually end up doing? 60 plus 60 plus 60 plus 30, which is definitely in the realm of a second grade addition problem. But you don't want to take a sixth grader and make them do worksheets full of second grade problems, like 60 plus 60 plus 60 plus 30. By having them think through that sixth grade problem carefully, they were building their proportional reasoning by having to think about both of those quantities, the miles and the hours, how they interacted, and then they used the reasonings they were comfortable with, counting hour by hour, and then adding those corresponding miles. This can then be connected to multiplication by saying, Okay, so we were repeatedly adding on how many groups of 60 miles? Oh, was that three and a half groups of 60 miles? Okay, is there an operation for that we could do directly? But here's the thing. So in a classroom, you're going to have sixth graders who can solve this problem in just a few seconds by multiplying 60 times 3.5, 210, boom, I'm done. And then you're going to have those sixth graders who are going to take several minutes to reason through this problem piece by piece. You might even spend an entire class period around the exploration of this one question involving 60 miles per hour and how far will we have gone after a certain amount of time. But that is okay. It would be so much better to spend an entire class period exploring this one problem than to have those students who we might feel they're so far behind, let's give them a page of addition problems to work on. See, that's gonna leave them stuck in that additive reasoning. That's all they're developing. Whereas a deep dive into this one scenario will develop the beginnings of those other stages of more sophisticated reasoning while also allowing them to use their additive reasoning to arrive at an answer to a legitimate sixth grade problem. And the other thing I would venture to say is that you can have a sixth grader who has, say, memorized the formula rate times time equals distance, which, by the way, side note, consider not just teaching that formula by giving it to students. Let students reason about what it means for there to be a relationship between distance and time, between those miles and those hours, such that there is a certain amount of miles that go with each hour. Then let them come to their conclusions about how to make those calculations. Because if you just give them a formula and have them multiplying two numbers together, They're simply using that multiplicative reasoning, but they aren't fully mentally in that place where they are starting to wrap their heads around that ratio reasoning, that proportional reasoning about those two related quantities. Anyway, back to that sixth grader who has memorized that formula, maybe they can churn out answers to problems like this but they may not be able to fully analyze or wrap their heads around this situation of traveling at a constant speed as being a situation that uses proportional reasoning in a way that relates these two quantities to each other and how they change together. So don't think that those students who can churn out those problems quickly to those rate time distance questions, don't think that they won't also benefit from sitting through an entire class period of analyzing this one problem in great depth including breaking it down into that incremental adding of a little bit of time, a little bit of distance, a little bit more time, a little bit more distance. Understanding that sort of additive conception of this is actually also crucial. It plays into the understanding of the slope of a line, that as we add a certain amount of that x quantity, we also add a certain amount of that y quantity. And how are those related? And then when we get even deeper into math and we wanna understand how to find the slope of a curve or rather the slope of a tangent line to a curve. So let's say we're not traveling at a constant speed, we're traveling at a speed that's changing we can't just straight up divide the total distance that we've traveled by the total time it took because that would tell us the average speed. To find the speed at a certain point in time, we're gonna have to imagine that point in time and incrementally add on a little bit of time and a little bit of distance according to the function that tells us how fast we are going and let those two quantities shrink down to a tiny amount. Calculus really is based on this incremental adding idea. So if you didn't track with all that, where I just went, that's okay. Someday I'll do a Calculus 101 mini series of episodes or something, because even calculus, it's very accessible, you guys. And it's so amazing. But the thing I just wanted to note at this time is that that reasoning that we do in calculus involves thinking about adding a little bit of time, a little bit of distance. And it's sort of an echo of the reasoning that that sixth grader was using. Remember the sixth grader who we thought was only working at a second grade level, and I'm putting that in air quotes because they had to break things down and add. But this is a very legitimate way to work on the problem and an angle from which to consider it. So I said all of that to say, if we go back to that development of mathematical reasoning, the way that Pam Harris has it laid out so brilliantly in that diagram, we don't ever leave any part of those mathematical reasonings behind. All of them come forward with us as we develop an increasingly robust framework for analyzing any sort of mathematical situation. Anyway, Pam Harris, you can find her online. Her website is mathisfigureoutable.com. She also has a podcast and she has a free workshop actually designed all around this development of mathematical reasoning graphic that I've been discussing. I will put some links in the show notes. So today I want to explore additive reasoning which, as I hope I've started to convince you, is something that we don't leave behind in our early years, but it's something we continue to bring forward with us throughout our entire lives. But first, I'll mention a few ways that you can support the podcast. If you're listening from a podcast app, you can rate and leave a review. That's really helpful. And if you're on my website, mathematics.com, you can sign up for our email list to stay informed about the things that we've got going on. And there is a place on the website where you can also become a member for some other fun experiences and opportunities. And that website is mathematics.com. That's M-A-T-H-E-M-A-T-I-X-E-D dot We're going to look at additive reasoning today from a specific framework that I've put together in my own mind after studying math education for a while and working with lots and lots of students and listening to their thinking, and then thinking about my own thinking, what's going on inside my own head. You'll come across math education literature that categorizes the different types of addition word problems In a handful of ways, depending on what you read, there might be three or four or five basic scenarios for addition, or those can be broken down even further. And then again, depending on how it's broken down, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 different scenarios for subtraction which I'll come back to this, but subtraction is very much a part of additive reasoning. And I've sort of distilled out of all of that, these two mental structures that can be used to analyze how we think when we're thinking additively. And they can apply to all these different scenarios by using one or the other or both of them in conjunction. I have found these two words useful. You can judge for yourself. These two words aren't actually formal math terms. Technically, they're more sciency terms that we might use in physics. In any case, the terms are static and kinetic. So for a long time, as I was developing this idea, I kept saying static and moving in my mind, or I would say static and motion. And I didn't really like how moving or motion sounded together with static. So recently I finally Googled what's an adjective for motion and up popped the word kinetic. And I thought that's exactly what I'm looking for. That even sounds just right next to static static and kinetic. They're just a great pair of words. So while static means lacking in movement, action, or change, kinetic means relating to or resulting from motion. And I use both of these ideas to consider additive reasoning and all of the contexts that we use it in. So with kinetic, kinetic would be thinking about the motion of starting somewhere and moving to another number. Whereas with static, that would be more like a snapshot of a quantity and how it can be broken down or decomposed into other quantities or how there can be two numbers which together comprise a larger number. There is an overlap between these two and connections between them that as we consider these different scenarios and as we perform the calculations in our head, that they require, these are the things that we're going to be exploring today and over the next few episodes. But we'll talk specifically quite a bit about addition today. So let's talk about a specific addition expression, three plus two. So I want you in your head right now, I want you to compose a little story problem or a word problem for this expression. This would be great for a kindergartner or first grader where they would use three plus two as the expression to model that scenario. Okay, so now you've got a scenario in your head, right? This will be fun. Let's consider whether your scenario might lend itself more to static or kinetic thinking. You might've thought something like this. I have three items. Let's say I have stickers. I have three stickers and I get two more stickers. Okay, so I acquire two more of something. In this case, I might think about three as being a starting point And there is this action occurring, this action of me acquiring two more stickers. So that when I see that addition sign followed by a two, plus two, it's like an action. The plus two means that two more are being moved into the possession of whoever started with the three. And I'll stop here to mention this as well. This kinetic idea is probably more closely related to the earliest ways that we think about adding, particularly with very young students because they will all go through this phase where adding requires this sort of motion of counting even with a problem as simple as three plus two. At first, instead of thinking of that two as a static chunk, two things moving together, a young child will think of that in terms of the flow of counting two additional items. So instead of just thinking three and jumping to five, they will actually think or probably even say out loud, four, five. In fact, even before that, they will have gone through a stage where they probably had to count the three items, one, two, three, and then marked those two by going four, five. So all of that is very reminiscent of motion. And so I would call that sort of a kinetic way of thinking about it. And specifically in this scenario, where you are moving the two to go be a part of the three, that also kind of brings this idea of motion to mind for me. So even that when we reach that stage where we're not actually counting individually, we might still think about this plus two as a movement of two. And if I were to model this on a number line, that's another layer of abstraction, but I want you to picture a number line with tick marks starting at zero, and then all of the natural numbers, so one, two, and so forth. And if we want to model this expression, three plus two on that number line, if we're thinking of the three as that starting point, we could put a dot at the three, and then the plus two would be this motion of traveling two more. So if your number line is horizontal, you would be actually drawing in that arrow that's taking you two more to the right. So you end up with this arrow pointing to the right that has traveled a length of two. And that represents that kinetic action of adding two by traveling down the line to arrive at the five. Now go back to your scenario for the three plus two. Was your scenario sort of like this one where you start at three and then there's this action of acquiring two more or moving forward two more? in the case of picturing like that distance on a number line. Or maybe your scenario was more like this other way of thinking about 3 plus 2. And that is to sort of consider the 3 plus 2 as a snapshot point in time. So there exists side by side of each other, 3 of something and 2 of something. It's a subtle difference, but I think it's an important one. So let's say to use those stickers again, If I have three stickers on my notebook and two stickers on my water bottle, how many stickers do I have in all? And we would write three plus two as an expression that represents the fact that we have three here and two here. Was your scenario more like this one, the sort of static coexisting of two amounts that need to be combined? Now let me pause here to notice that the actual calculating of three plus two, even in a scenario that's more static like that one, where all the stickers are sitting here in front of me already, some on my notebook and some on my water bottle, I still might be likely to perform the calculation in a way that implies motion. Like I might count the stickers or I might start from the three and then count the two more stickers in this fluid way. And both of those scenarios certainly do represent the same total number, which is five. So in one sense, it doesn't really matter how you perform the calculation, but there's a couple of things I want to explore here. One of them is that having this static sense of combining the numbers, where I've got three here and two over here, that's really important to developing a really important mathematical intuition, which is that it doesn't matter in which order you add those two numbers, you will get the same result. So in picturing this static scenario of three stickers on your notebook and then looking over here at the two stickers on your water bottle, you could have your notebook and water bottle switch places. So now you're looking at two stickers on your water bottle and then the three stickers on your notebook. And because you can see that it's the same amount of stickers sitting in front of you, you would realize that two plus three must have the same value as three plus two. And this realization, very young children can understand this, it derives from something called conservation of number. And that's the understanding that we can rearrange the objects in a set, and yet the total amount of objects remains the same. There's some really interesting history of the research into what age we are when we develop the conservation of number, and some experiments that were done regarding that, and then how some of the conclusions that were jumped to might not have been completely valid. So I'll talk about that in my bonus video that goes with this episode. You can find a link to that on the website. When you get older, this thing we've been discussing is going to be called the commutative property of addition. And I think just like everything else that we learn in math, I think this should be something that we make sure that students can develop that sense that they prove it to themselves as it applies to addition by having groups of physical objects that they can rearrange in front of them rather than just being told you can add in either order. So another interesting thing related to this, if we are only thinking of adding kinetically, as in thinking of that plus two means starting somewhere and adding two, we might see that as a completely separate thing from plus three, which means starting somewhere and adding three. And we might not make that connection between three plus two and two plus three. If we start at three on the number line and add two, it's not immediately obvious that we will land at the same place as if we started at two and added three. Or maybe that one does seem obvious to us because the numbers are so small and we're so familiar with that sum or that total. But let's just change it up a little bit. Picture a number line going a little higher and let's consider 27 plus 48. So it's not immediately obvious that if I start with 27 and then I add 48, that I'm gonna land at the same place as if I started with 48 and landed at 27. But it is intuitively a little clearer if I'm thinking of those 27 and 48 objects sort of in that static way simultaneously that I can rearrange them and put the 48 objects over here and then the 27 and that rearranging because of that conservation of number, that leads into that sense of trust in the commutative property of addition that we would still have the same amount. And this static method of looking at it tends to lend itself a little more to the model that's often used in math education, which is sometimes called a tape diagram or a bar diagram. So we would have a bar, or like a long skinny rectangle, and we would label that with 27. And bumped up next to that, we could have a bar that was labeled 48. And then we might have another parallel bar, either above or below, that runs the entire length of both of those bars together. And that bar would have a length that is the sum of the two original numbers. But on that diagram, those numbers are just sort of sitting there in that static way. And some real world scenarios lend themselves more to that thinking, but again, this is an additive conception that you can think about for the purposes of calculating, which lead you to that comfort level of breaking apart those numbers and rearranging those numbers and yet conserving that total quantity. So these words, static and kinetic, these are not words that I would necessarily use when I'm talking to students, but they are concepts that I have in the back of my mind when I'm encouraging students to explain their thinking or when I'm trying to explain my own thinking to students so that we can elaborate on our understanding of these additive situations and make connections between different ways that we can think about them and how they're related to each other. And this is not something just for very young students. We continue to reason additively with fractions in upper elementary, and then this becomes specifically relevant again in middle school where students are going to be adding integers which includes negative numbers and what that looks like. So in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be coming back on episode four and talk a lot more about working with integers and how to reason about those integer operations without resorting to just memorizing rules. If we have solid concepts of additive reasoning along the lines of what I've just been discussing, we're in a very good place to develop that reasoning a little further to encompass adding with fractions, adding with negative numbers. Or like we talked about back at the beginning of the episode, to be able to use that additive piece in our consideration of a proportional scenario, how much of one quantity we add and how that relates to how much of the other quantity we add. So can we circle back to 27 plus 48? If you hang out in the same social media spaces as I do, it's quite possible that you've encountered a post involving this expression, which to the best of my ability, I traced to a Twitter user who asked this question a couple of years ago. He asked, what happens in your head when you do 27 plus 48? And then it migrated to Facebook, which is where I think I first saw it. And it popped up a few times in my feed. Every time a Facebook friend answers it, it shows up again, as these things do. And I feel like the last time I saw it on Facebook, there were well over a million responses or something like that. I will link to the original Twitter thread, which is what I could find in the show notes. And you'll find when scrolling through all the different ways that people answered it is that there were a lot of different ways. Now, for some people, the method of choice is something that we call the standard algorithm for addition. And that's typically done when you're writing out a problem. So you would write out 27 on the top and then 48 lined up underneath. And then you would add the eight to the seven and get 15. And then here's some interesting language. You would put down the five and carry the one. And then you would add that one in along with the two and the four for a total of seven. And then you look at what you've written and you read that out as 75. And many people wrote something out like what I just said in their response to this Twitter thread. Even though the standard algorithm is something that's, it's designed specifically for paper and pencil. and. It's in a way a little bit more complicated to try to keep track of those things in your head while you're doing them. This is what a lot of people gravitate to. It's what they were taught and it's an algorithm that always works, it's true. You can use it if you use it accurately and you'll always get the right answer. But if you read through responses on this, you will also find that many people think about 27 plus 48 in other ways. Some people, for example, broke it apart into thinking sort of place value wise. So when they saw 27, they thought of 20 and 7, and then 40 and 8, sort of like that snapshot static idea of what those numbers are comprised of based on place value, and then rearranged those and combined the 20 and the 40 to get 60, and the 8 and the 7 to get 15, and then again combined those six tens with the 110 and the 15 to be 70 plus that other 5. Now, notice the same sort of things are happening in the standard algorithm we did a minute ago. But here's what this method makes abundantly clear that the standard algorithm does not. Those digits of 2 and 4 are not a 2 and a 4. They are 2 tens and 4 tens. And remember that 1 that we carried? It's not a 1, it's 1 10. And you can use the standard algorithm and be trained to use it without having a good understanding of that crucial connection to place value. And if you haven't ever tried adding mentally in this way before, it might be a little bit tricky at first, but it will help to realize that when you see that two in the 27, it's actually a 20. And by naming it as such and considering it as such, you're really tapping into a stronger understanding of what's going on with these numbers, what the numbers are, and then how to work with them by adding them together. Now, there are lots of other ways of doing this addition as well. So another way, some people might've started at the 27 and then in jumps sort of added in the 40 to get to 67, and then realizing we still need to add eight more. First, maybe they added three more to get to a friendly 70, and then added that final five that we still needed to put there from that eight that we still needed to add. Notice we have this beautiful flexible combination of static and kinetic thinking going on here. So I'm gonna run through that one more time. So, I'm going to start with the 27, and I'm going through this kinetic process of jumping by 40. I'm going to take those four tens and put them together with two tens, seven, and four tens, and I rearrange that to get to 67. And then that motion of adding on that final eight, I did that strategically in jumps by taking my eight, thinking of that statically as existing sort of as a three and a five. And then I performed the jumps accordingly. I added the three to get to 70, and then the five to get to 75. And then another way, which is the way I think I originally used when I first saw this problem, is to realize that these numbers are really close to what we might call benchmark numbers, numbers that we're really comfortable and familiar with. So the way I processed this one was I looked at that 48, and I thought, oh, that's really close to 50. I would like to sort of have that be a 50. I'm going to take two from the 27, leaving 25, and then I'm going to put those two with the 48, creating a 50. So what I'm left with is two numbers that are very familiar to me, a 25 and a 50. And being a quarter and a half of 100, respectively, they make me think of like a quarter, a coin, 25 cents, and another two quarter coins, that's 50 cents, And I'm really comfortable knowing that that would combine to make 75 cents because I have a lot of real world experience in that particular area. And then since no units were specified, I go back to just realizing that the sum of those two numbers is 75. I found myself actually thinking about the money when I was computing this in my head which is another interesting aspect of mathematics, especially for students, that whenever it can connect to some part of our lives with which we're already familiar, it's really helpful to build that context which builds that understanding. I had one student who loved working with multiples of 15 because she was really familiar with that as being a quarter of an hour. And so she knew there were 60 minutes in an hour and she knew there were 45 minutes in three quarters of an hour. So she knew three 15s would be 45 and four 15s would be 60 and so on, but I digress. As I mentioned earlier, this is really going to be sort of a multi-part thing Next week's episode will find us digging deeper into subtraction. And then the following week, we will apply the additive operations, addition and subtraction, to those marvelous and intriguing integers, which include the negative counterparts of the natural numbers along with zero. Also, just a heads up, I'm about to refer to a math joke, which if it doesn't immediately make sense to you, come check out the show notes and we'll talk about it some more there. Thanks for thinking along with me today. This second episode of Mathematics has been brought to you by the number two. The first natural even number, the first prime number, and only even prime number, and the number which, when written in binary, looks like the decimal number 10. And as such, provides the material for my favorite math joke, a joke which, when seen in written form, reads like this. There are 10 kinds of people in the world, those who understand binary, and those who don't. And this episode has also been brought to you by Mathematics.com, where we envision a world full of freedom and power for everyone through understanding math. That's M-A-T-H-E-M-A-T-I-X-E-D dot com.